I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And imagine you're in a courtroom. You've been charged with a crime, and today your verdict is being read by a jury. It echoes inside the corners of your mind. Guilty. The judge turns to you and offers you two choices. One, you go to prison for five years, and then you're free to go. Or two, remove your shirt and immediately receive 10 lashes. Then you're free to go. So which option do you choose? If you chose two, you're not alone. Our returning guest this week has written a book arguing against the unconsidered cruelty of prison sentences and uses this very hypothetical to make his case. Peter Moskos is a professor in the Department of Law, Police Science, and Criminal Justice Administration at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is the director of John Jay College's New York NYPD Executive Master's Program and the author of three books, which have earned him recognition as one of Atlantic Magazine's Brave Thinkers of the Year. He was also published in the Washington Post, Washington Monthly, the New York Times, CNN, McLean's, Pacific Standard, Slate, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and his blog, copinthehood.com. Peter, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me back again. (laughs) Well, I am very glad to have you back on the show because there was a lot I still wanted to chat with you about when we wrapped our last conversation, which actually wasn't that long ago. And I think we can kind of break down our conversation into three categories. First, I'd love to wrap up some loose ends about what it means to, quote, police green. Also, the different ways that black and white police officers experience the act of policing and your book, In Defense of Flogging, which uses a provocative framing to reimagine what our criminal justice system could look like. So in Cop in the Hood's Afterward, entitled Police in Green, you talk about Sir Robert Peel. And we talked about him briefly at the end of the last podcast, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring him up again. He invented the concept of foot patrols in 1829 as he established the first police force. Now, I'd specifically love your thoughts on his nine principles of policing. Now, I remember in our last chat, you pointed out that he never codified the principles into an official list, but he did see them through in practice. And while foot patrols seem decidedly old-fashioned today, with all the cars and various technologies available to police over the last 200 years, some of which you went in-depth on in our first chat, the concept was pretty radical at the time, and the philosophy that undergirded 19th century foot patrols feels kind of radical again today. So we don't need to go through all nine principles if you don't want to, but honestly, I could probably spend the entire podcast uh, dissecting them with you. So what's the general thesis of these principles? And then how were they ultimately translated into this kind of list of nine if Peel himself never really codified them in that way? The nine principles that are, well, for those who know those kind of things, often known. So they they come from uh, the early uh, 1948 book by Charles Reif, Principles of British Policing, A Short History of the British Police. It's not actually that short of a history. So that that's where those principles come from. And, and in that sense, they are principles of British policing that descend from, from Robert Peel. But just as sort of, you know, historically accurate, nope, he didn't codify them. But also the principles that we know are a little uh, sort of, I don't know, they're, they're in a way better than what Peel did, at least as an ideal standard. Peel's policing was a very, it was a, supposed to be a very visible, surveillance-oriented deterrence that cops are going to be out there. They're supposed to know who the troublemakers are. They're supposed to know their beat and they're supposed to be there regularly. That's what Robert Peel set up. 
Now, the part that they have in common, some what you could say the whole spirit of the nine principles, but the first of these principles is that the police exist to prevent crime and disorder. That is basically a, you know, what we would call today is a, a mission statement. And that the principles go on to say that policing depends on public approval, that they need the cooperation of the, of the public. And in many ways, they're doing what everyone should do. We're just paying cops full time to maintain the standards that we collectively have decided should be maintained. And it's important to note, just for, just for some context here for our listeners, the idea that police are meant to prevent crime and disorder is still something that's being, and I know you're very familiar with this, something that's still being debated today. In fact, I just a few days ago saw like a headline article in Vox that was trying to prove the point that yes, contrary to popular belief, police officers do in fact prevent crime. Yeah, that, that article was by um, Herman Lopez, who I yes. recently um, interviewed for my podcast at um, qualitypolicing.com uh, to talk to him about that. It was, a, it was a nice article. In some ways, most people might go, well, that's common sense, except a lot of people are spending a lot of effort sort of trying to, if your goal is to abolish police, the first step is to show that police aren't effective. But there's a nice body of literature spanning decades demonstrate what police do, of course, matters. And even their mere presence has a very successful deterrent on crime. And the, some of these studies are sort of fascinating natural experiments, like related to terrorism alert in DC, one of them, I can't remember which who, who wrote it. But they simply, you know, at certain points after September 11, 2001, there were more cops in DC related to these terrorism alerts. They, they came out in force basically and stood around. And it showed that where those cops, when it came, where they were, saw decreases in crime. And they weren't actually doing much other than simply being there. So there are a lot of different kind of things, but it's almost undoubtedly true that of course police can serve a positive role in, in, in preventing crime. But that's that, you know, but it needs to be reset because a lot of people simply assert that it doesn't happen. The hard part though is, and this is usually listed as the ninth of Peel's principles. And this Robert Peel actually did say, um, this comes straight from his, his early uh, instructions to police officers, that the test of police deficiency is the absence of crime and disorder, not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with it. Solving a case is should at some, I mean, it's good, of course, to find someone who killed somebody, but at some level, it's a failure because the crime mm -hmm. happened. And so that idea of preventative policing that is very much at the core of of this of what has what then spread to America in 1845 to New York City and was called you know they were called very much the new police it was a new concept it was quite radical then because it was the idea was we're not simply going to cities had policing the word wasn't new as a concept but it was done by cities would have night watchmen but that was always sort of a disaster because you can never get good workers to do it and they'd fall asleep or get drunk and of course people rich enough could hire their own security. What Robert Peel did, by the way, I've heard Edinburgh claims to precede P uh, Peel, but I, I will leave that Scottish um, English dispute to them. But London gets credit for it rightly or wrongly, I think mostly rightly. But so what, the idea was this is going to be a full-time job paid for by the public to serve the public in uniform as a public utility, if you will. Same way we don't, we prefer not to have everyone running generators. We have power companies to do it more efficiently and to the benefit of all. So that that was the idea of, of police. But we've that idea of that cops can prevent crime, though I think it's common sense. And it fell into disfavor really after the Kerner Commission following riots in 68 and 69. And it was a 
lengthy report, this Kerner Commission, but it laid the groundwork for sociologists for years to come. It laid the groundwork for the root causes theory that police don't prevent crime. The crime is a inevitable uh, result of inequities in society. That was kind of, I mean, cops never really believed that, but it became sort of the standard operating procedure for cities and police departments really until the crime drop in New York and starting in 1993-94. And that during that time when Bill Bratton took over the NYPD for the first time, he very much said, we are going to reduce crime. And people said, that's crazy. Why would you promise that? You, either you can't do it or it's still crazy because why would you promise it? Because it's a political liability. But he said, we're going to reduce crime. I think he said 15% in the first year. And he actually exceeded that goal and crime kept dropping dramatically for the next five years. And to some extent, to a lesser extent, but um, until, until last year. So that idea that's, that it's our job. But it's much more, it's rare that a politician loses an election because of crime. They kind of say, well, it's, therefore we have to fund whatever pet project I want to come. But they, they, no one says, this is, what, this is my job. And police departments, when there is crime, of course, are quite happy to pass the buck too and say, well, look, we're, we're doing the best we can, or we, you know, we have a clearance rate of 50%. So that's pretty good, that kind of stuff. But it's important to remember that the basic mission is to prevent crime and also disorder. That's another part, this idea that we have standards that we want upheld in cities and public spaces. So that also became a job of police. And that also today is much debated. You know, what is the role of police in enforcing minor crimes? You know, that, that's a political decision, whether we want cops to do that or not. Yeah. And in terms of what the role of the police are, you know, I wasn't initially going to go through all nine of the principles, but it might be instructive because Although these principles weren't codified, I guess, officially until, I guess you said, 1948, the principles generally, I imagine, were practiced by Peel and his men in 1829. I think that a lot of modern day activists and even and average citizens would find a lot of these proposals quite progressive. I think few people could disagree with these principles. So it might be a little bit lengthy. Uh, maybe I won't go through all nine of them, but they, they get a little redundant. <laughs> they do. They do. So we'll start with number two, to recognize that the power of the police to fulfill their functions and duties is dependent on public approval of their existence, actions, and behavior, and on their ability to secure and maintain public respect. To recognize, this is number three now, to recognize that to secure and maintain the respect and approval of the public means also the securing of willing cooperation of the public in the task of securing observance of laws. This one I think is quite relevant. This is number five. To seek and preserve public favor, not by pandering to public opinion, but by constantly demonstrating absolutely impartial service to law in complete independence of policy and without regard to the justice or injustices of the substance of individual laws, by ready offering of individual service and friendship to all members of the public without regard to their wealth or social standing, by ready exercise of courtesy and friendly good humor and by ready offering of individual sacrifice in protecting and preserving life. This is number six. To use physical force, and I think this is very relevant to American police, to use physical force only when the exercise of persuasion, advice, and warning is found to be insufficient to obtain public cooperation to an extent necessary to a secure observance of law or to restore order, and to use only the minimum degree of physical force which is necessary on any particular occasion for achieving a police objective. And then I'll, I'll do one more. 
this is number seven, to maintain at all times a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and that the public are the police. The police being only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen in the interests of community welfare and existence. Thank you for humoring me there. But I feel like I feel like those principles, even the ones we just shared, and I think all nine, would be considered pretty radical and progressive if made up today. And I, I wonder how the American system has strayed so far from some of those principles, especially when it comes to violence as sort of a last resort rather than persuasion, and how the distance between the public and the police has gotten as wide as it has, rather than constantly reminding ourselves that the police are the public and the public are the police. Well, like, you know, let me actually read some of Peel's actual words. I'm staring at a little document I made related to this, which restates one of those. I actually think it's better the way Peel said it originally. And again, this, these were the original instructions given to patrol officers in 1829. He must remember there is no qualification more indispensable to a police officer than a perfect command of temper, never suffering himself to be moved in the slightest degree by any language or threat that may be used. And this last part is very relevant today. If he do his duty in a quiet and determined manner, such conduct will probably induce well-disposed bystanders to assist him, should he require it. So there's a little bit of self-preservation in there too. And partly, you know, it's because of technology. These were regulations. He's saying, don't use your rattle too much. Yeah, cops used to carry rattles around to signal for backup because this was course before radios, but fascinating to me, this was before the whistle had been invented. The whistle was a technological, the police whistle was a technological advancement that replaced the more awkward rattle. But this fact remains that these were cops walking around on their own dangerous parts of town with dealing with people who often didn't want to be dealt with. So how have we, I mean, you might question whether we ever had these ideals in America. I mean, the biggest difference, of course, when, when cops, there are two big differences when cops, when policing came to America, because it was based on the London model. One was that cops were armed quickly because America's always been a more violent country. Cops weren't, they were in by in the 1850s, they carried guns. After the Civil War, they were actually issued guns and policing became a bit more militaristic after the civil war in America. Uh, the other big difference is where this was run, the police department was run by um, Peel's two deputies, forget their names, Maine and somebody else, I forget, I heard Charles Rowan and Richard Maine. Evidently, they did a very good job, but they, you know, they fired, the third of the f first police force were fired in a year or two. Officer number one, which would be quite, was fired on the first day of work for being drunk. So, they had a lot of obstacles to overcome, and they did that, but it was this idea, it was not controlled by politics as much. And in America, policing was set up very much on a ward basis in a city. So your local alderman would control the police department in his little district. So it became political fiefdoms. And, and if your alderman lost the election and, you know, to the opposing party, then, you know, there's a good chance the whole police department would be replaced. It was a, often a patronage job. So it was professionalism and civil service came later to American policing. So that might be part of it, that it, that the reality of the political reality was perhaps less conducive to independent, lofty police ideals. To circle back to the ninth principle, there was something that you said in regards to it. And just to paraphrase, the test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with them. 
And I think why that stuck out, and perhaps this has been a problem as long as the police departments have existed, but I at least know in modern day, as long as I've been alive, a sticking point with either government programs or government departments is that they have to show their worth in order to be funded, right? And oftentimes showing your worth means either busy work or physically showing this is us doing our jobs, right? And so it almost seems that in the modern context, actually decreasing crime rather than solving crime, right? Decreasing it before it happens, decreasing crime before it happens rather than solving it after the fact almost works against how modern police departments are incentivized, which is to show visibly how effective they are through the act of police work. Can the ninth principle exist at the same time in the 21st century when oftentimes government programs are incentivized to show their value visibly? I think it can. I think it was until recently even. I think police are less burdened with that because among most people, there's the assumption that we need police and that's that's taken as a given. I don't think the public cares how many arrests cop makes. That tends to be an internal sort of you know, the tail starts wagging the dogs, the means over the ends syndrome as a in academic literature. This idea that you're yeah, you because you can quantify police action, that becomes the standard. But you know that that's where leadership takes over and you know that that's a matter of, of good leadership saying no let's stay focused on the goal i mean arguably until recently america had you know historically low violence rates you know record low in many cities including new york incarceration was going down not fast enough but still it was going down police enforcement was going down number of arrests and in cities i've looked at like new york complaints against cops were going down so in, in many ways everything was as good as it's ever been and then apparently many people decided we had to sort of throw it all out and start again. So things have gotten worse definitely in the past year. But I mean, I would say since starting with Ferguson probably in, in 2014, um, we've had a strong movement to reform policing. My problem is I would prefer to say let's improve policing. You can have bad reform, counterproductive reform. Now we have higher rates of violence and probably coming from that, it'll be tougher to continue a trend of decarceration and if more people are committing crimes. So I don't, in a way, I don't think we appreciated how good it was because despite the fact it might've been better than ever, of course, bad things were still happening. 700,000 cops in America, many of them are young men and young men are often inclined to do stupid things, to have the power of badge and, and a gun on you. You know, those, those mistakes have been and will continue to be tragic and sometimes lethal. You can either say, well, therefore, it's an inherently flawed institution. Let's do away with it. But that's not working too well. Or you figure out how, you know, how do we reduce the bad things from happening? But we're never going to eliminate it. It's like, it seems that perfection has become the goal. And that's unachievable when you have human interactions, quite frankly. You need to, at some point, stay rooted in data and reality and say, you know, well, this maybe this department does things better. Ironically, the places where protests were the strongest anti policing protests last year, tend to be the cities that actually are doing a better job on things that we can quantify and measure in terms of use of lethal force, for instance, or, or even in their effectiveness against crime. People don't seem so concerned about police in places, cities out west, usually medium-sized cities where cops shoot a hell of a lot more people, for instance. If that's the goal, is to reduce unnecessary shootings, well, why don't we, why don't we work on the cities where it's a bigger problem? Politics comes into play again there. 
one of the reasons I think that certain cities do a lot better is because there is more accountability and even a skeptical public. So police departments, quite frankly, have had to up their game in certain cities because they are held accountable to mistakes. The decrease in police use of force, especially in the 70s, but it's really, it's been a trend even after that, has been dramatic. And part of the problem is we don't have good national data on this, but you look at city after city, I don't know the number off the top of my head. The New York Police Department used to shoot hundreds of people a year. Now it's, you know, usually around 10. I mean, they, these are huge reductions and it didn't, it didn't just happen. They happened because- I think it was over 200 something in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. It's really astounding. And, you know, and we don't know before that because they didn't keep track. What happened is New York City political leaders and police leaders said, this matters and we're going to do better. And so first they started keeping track. You have to actually, you know, tell somebody when you shoot your gun. That was a, you know, imagine that. <laughs> and and basically the NYPD, or, you know, they kind of implemented policy that became, I don't know why I'm forgetting the Supreme Court case, don't shoot a fleeing felon in the back just for fleeing. New York City implemented the policies that kind of were the basis for that Supreme Court decision long before it became uh, the Supreme Court passed that decision. You know, and then there was better training, but the streets in a way got de-escalated in part because police used less force. These were great victories, but yeah, it's like you can never be good enough. And the other major changes that happened that again, which gets back to preventing crime before it happens, is policing became very car-oriented, car-focused, where cops would sit in cars and wait to, to answer calls. It was done in the name of efficiency. And the technological advances of, of the walkie-talkie basically contribute to that. And you had the 911 call and response model set up, which is great for fires and if you're having a heart attack. Not so useful for crime, where you're probably going to call after the fact anyway. But the streets were, in essence, de-policed, partly because of that technological change and the shift to a car-based focus of policing, partly in response to political pressure to have cops be less present, particularly in, in minority neighborhoods where police were seen as, as part of the problem. So now we're going through the same cycle 50 years later. But violence went up as a result of this. Policing did not become more efficient. And you kind of you, you lost the beat cop who, who knew the neighborhood and, and the people in it. That's a detriment to public safety and the ideals of policing. Yes. No, absolutely. You had mentioned something that stood out to me, and I just wanted to circle back to it, which was the cities where the protests happened last year happened in cities where the police departments are quite good, to summarize what you said. And more progressive, you know, progressive. in a political sense. Yeah, both. Now, is that evidence that protests work and an active and participatory citizenry that shows its displeasure with bad policing incentivizes police and their departments to improve? Or were you saying that those police departments were already good, the protests were just protesting the wrong police departments and not the bad ones? I just want to make sure I understand. Well, I'm saying two things. I, I do think policing got better. Let me call it the Al Sharpton effect. Usually pisses off some cops when I say that. But I think Al Sharpton made the NYPD a better organization because every time there was an incident, whether real or invented, but usually real, Sharpton would be there in front of the cameras in the, in the 80s. That does create a certain level of accountability for some of these incidents would have been swept under the rug in another city, perhaps. And instead, the police department was forced to say, how can we prevent this from happening again? Holding any government organization, I wish it, wish it weren't just policing, but holding any organization, including policing, holding them accountable for their acts, for their misdeeds, um, I think is an important part of, of improving things. That's 
very different than what happened last year, where it was more cities, some cities saw defunding, but it was in a very vindictive manner. The goal wasn't to improve policing. The goal was just to have less of it. The goal was to punish cops, to demoralize cops. I forget if it's Raleigh or Durham. I think it's Durham, North Carolina. Anyway, there's a huge defund police painted in the street in front of police headquarters. It was there for, I don't know, a year or something. And why? You can support defund. Like reasonable people, I suppose, can differ on police budgets. That's not the issue. But really, you want police officers in headquarters to stare out their office window and see an anti-policing message. You think that's going to make police better? I mean, it may not matter at all, but this you think is part of the solution? Because I don't, I don't think that's true. I think the morale of any organization matters. And of course, you're going to get better work out of employees if they actually don't fear coming to work every day, if they don't hate their job. So it seems like it would be in everyone's interest to have the best policing we can. But that sort of, I think, got lost. And it's a sort of anti-policing zeal that you know, was never incredibly popular, but still was very vocal and, and influential at a level of local city councils and so on, where council people would often say other neighborhoods that they don't live in are over-policed. You know, but they, they, this is the political system we have. So in some ways, we, we do have to deal with it. But I just don't understand the idea of sort of who, who benefits when we get worse policing. Yeah. One thing that I mean, you talked uh, quite a bit just now about why the defund police as a slogan and as kind of a message is ineffective. And I would just like to yes and that. I have a lot of problems with police malfeasance and abuse. And I think that any government organization needs to be incredibly accountable to the public, but especially one that has the power to do violence and take a life. I think there are a few other organizations in our country that should be held to as high a standard as one that can take the life of the citizenry. but. I think lost in this conversation, something you just touched on, is police, at the end of the day, are just human beings. And by that, I mean, they respond to the same kind of incentives that every other human being doing any other job would respond to. And I think that history has shown us time and time again, whether it's the civil rights movement or elsewhere, that people will often respond to incentives that implore them to be the best versions of themselves that they believe they can be. And so rather than denigrating somebody, even if their actions or the department they work in is worthy of denigration, that imploring someone to be the kind of person that the public wants them to be or that they inside of their heart believe that they can become, I would say would be a more effective tool to motivate better policing, which is ultimately what I think most Americans want. Well, one of the slogans from last year and it was saying, quit your job. Well, a lot of cops did that, or at least they transferred to other departments where people weren't yelling at them every day, lateral transfers. So it's not that there a lot of cops quit and did something else, though some did. But in places like Seattle, a lot of cops, there was active poaching of Seattle cops from neighboring jurisdictions. They said, look, we can give you a better work environment. I don't know what the pay difference was. Anne Arundel County in, in Maryland was having a recruiting campaign to get DC cops with a signing bonus. I don't know how many moved, but switched departments, but some did. It's a free country and you can't stop that, but it's ultimately it's, that's a zero sum world. So you're losing and they're taking the better cops too. You know, if you've got a disciplinary file, they're not going to hire you. So basically they're, they're, they're getting the, the good cops who with a, with a clean departmental record to leave their city. Congratulations. Again, I don't quite understand how that's supposed to benefit or who that's supposed to benefit. But that, yeah, we, we saw a lot, of, a lot of change for the worse last year in policing. 
This question is slightly tangential. It just came to mind as you were talking, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask a professor who studies this very thing. When I was doing my initial research for our first conversation, I was looking at crime stats, specifically here in California, although I imagine that these stats I'm about to kind of rattle off probably reflect what was a national trend at the time. But just in California, between the year 1960 and 1970, crime, depending on the crime I'm speaking about, either doubled or tripled. Just as a a couple examples here for the listener, in 1960, violent crime, there were about 37,500 incidents. In 1970, it was up to 95,000. Property crime, 1960, 500,000. 1970, 1.1 million. Murder, 1960, 616. 1970, 1,376. Here's another one. Robbery, 1960, 18,000. 1970, 45,000. And last but not least, let's do this one. Larceny theft, 300,000 in 1960, almost 700,000 in 1970. And that's only with a 4 million increase in total population. It went from 15 million people to 19 million people, but often a double or tripling of crime. So I guess, Professor, (laughs) I just wanted to ask, you mentioned that crime was pretty low until recently, and I imagine that's what you were referencing. Do we have the data or the cause for why crime tripled, doubled or tripled in that one decade alone? Because after that, it kind of plateaued and kind of stayed the same. Yeah. Until last year. Well, first, let me throw put a caveat to all those numbers, which is I, I don't trust a lot of crime data because of reporting issues, because of definitional issues sometimes. I generally focus only on murders and shootings, if I can get those numbers, because they tend to be more reliable. Now, that said, those numbers went up as well. If you, yeah, I just, if you talk about something like larceny, you know, the standards can change and so on. And most of those aren't reported, but undoubtedly crime went up during that decade nationwide. Yeah. There were about 9,000 murders in 1960. By 1970, it was 16,000 murders. And then it got up above 20,000 in in the mid seventies. And so anyhow, this is America's been gaining population during this whole time. American murders reached a low point in 2014 at just over 14,000. And then last year, we're up to 21,000 again. It's a big increase over a short period of time. The increase last year in murders, 28%, is more than double the previous largest increase. It's amazing that it could go up that much. And the pre- the largest increases before were in 67 and 68. I wasn't alive then, but it seems at least looking back on it, that many, again, many of the same issues were happening. And the response from a police standpoint that, you know, I mentioned earlier was less policing, certainly less proactive policing. The problem is, and there, again, there are political and racial reasons that led to that. But at some point you have to go, well, maybe this isn't helping. It's not working. Let's try something, you know, the old, if you're in a whole stop digging philosophy. But it would be great. I just, I'm, I worry that we're now in a new normal um, where we think it's normal to have over 20,000 murders again. The last time we had more than 20,000 murders was 1995. We've kind of lost 20 years of progress. And that's a real shame. Whatever we were doing in 2014, we were doing it better. So I, I don't know where we go from here, though, because we're not, yeah, there's such an ideological divide. It's very, you know, it's harder to 
fix something that's broken and keep it from breaking in the first place. But it's, it, it depends on leadership. It depends on politics. And that's, I don't even mean politics in a bad way as often. You don't want politics too involved in policing. I just mean politics in a, in a democratic country where people, you know, vote, you know, they get what they vote for. These things matter. So it's not, of course, it's not just police. Prosecution, I think, is a major part of it. Um, I don't think incarceration is a big part of it, but the idea of punishment, that matters, that there are people who misbehave should have some consequences. They don't have to be, they shouldn't be life-ruining consequences, but this idea that if you get caught doing something bad, you should be punished for it. Then we should figure out the most productive and least harmful way to punish somebody. We're moving away from that. Yes. And that will seg nicely into I thought I'd give you that segue <laughs> into indefensive flogging, which I do want to get to eventually, but I would regret if we didn't talk about your 2008 research paper. Now, granted, it was from 2008, but I imagine that you have been looking at this data since, but I thought it could be at least a good jumping off point because I find it really fascinating and informative. Specifically, the research paper is entitled Two Shades of Blue, Black and White in the Blue Brotherhood. And in that paper, you said, quote, Black police officers are more inclined to see their role as protecting the good people. White police officers place greater emphasis on arresting criminals. Both black and white police officers see the police administration and departmental discipline process as unfairly biased against their own respective race. And morale differs by race with higher morale among black police officers, end quote. Now, based on your connections to police departments and, and current research, how have the views of black and white police officers changed in the last 14 years since you originally wrote that paper? And especially in the last five, do we have that data? No, we don't, is the short answer. And I should say, is that paper, originally it was going to be a chapter in, in Cop in the Hood, um, but it didn't quite fit. So we took it out and turned it, you know, submitted it for peer review publication. It's based on my academy class in, in Baltimore in, in 2000 and my policing there. So I don't know how applicable it actually is to other cities. You know, my focus and knowledge is professionally, it was from being a cop in Baltimore. And, but since I moved to New York in 2002, it's been, you know, I'm, I have a New York view of the world, which often is means I don't know what's going on in other places, quite frankly. It can be a bit provincial here in the big city. But the general gist of that, I still think is very much true that black officers in, let's say, Baltimore, but or in New York, have ties to the community that they're policing often much more than, than white officers do. Every cop who's from the city they police and thinks it's an advantage. They also say, look, you can learn on the job. There's a learning curve involved. But I've never met a cop from the city they work in who doesn't think it was an advantage to grow up in the city. It's funny that cops who aren't from the city seem to say it matters less. But in Baltimore, often that meant that, that white cops were from the county, from, which is, surrounds Baltimore City, so basically from the suburbs. And those places are more white, though not at all exclusively in any sense. But that idea of having a certain amount of empathy, because you go, well, you know, I also, I got a cousin who's, you know, he's not a horrible person, but he's doing the same bad stuff, treating people as you would hope someone would treat your family. And that doesn't mean, you know, letting them off the hook, just a, you know, level of professionalism and respect. Now that said, there's a flip side to that though, which is cops who are tied to the neighborhood can take things more personally and see it more of, of a crusade and also define it as, as sort of good versus evil. So it's not 
and and also say though I can't actually it's hard to get data on this stuff. I think there's also um greater use of force, quite frankly, either because they believe they can it's justified or or they can get away with it better. So these are other things to take into account. But the big difference, I think, is that black cops are more likely than white cops, and there are always exceptions, to see nuance and a diversity in a high crime black neighborhood. And those neighborhoods really are truly diverse, not in terms of race necessarily, because they can often be incredibly segregated. Where I worked was, I mean, I, I could count the number of white people in the area I policed on on, on two hands. It was basically 100% African American, but within that, you know, you get you get a class diversity from you know professional class and working class. Um, so this idea of what constitutes the ghetto tends to be a cruder geographic perception from white cops that the ghetto is an area where people from that area see it as much more nuanced. It's always a little over there. I just somewhere I've described it. It's a bit like describing someone like using the word Yankee. Very few people self-identify as Yankees. I imagine there's somebody in New Hampshire or Maine who does, but it's always over there. It's always a little bit more, more to the Northeast. I mean, that way, as you get into high crime areas, you know, if, if you don't live in Baltimore city, you might think the whole city's a ghetto. And then if you're in Baltimore, it could be, okay, well, the Eastern district and the Western district is ghetto. And then you get to there and you start to see, you know, well, this, these blocks are okay. And their houses are well-maintained and people get up and go to work in the morning. But it gets to the point where someone where we can, and I've, you know, we're literally pointing across the street and, and say, that's ghetto. It's all, it's over there. And there are some people who self-identify proudly as being ghetto, but that's but very few and far between. So to, I think it's just about understanding that nuance. And you know, cops can learn that on the job too. But you just you have an advantage if if your whole life has been spent understanding the, those nuances. Yes, in your survey on residents of the ghetto, quote unquote, white police thought that they were all bad, while black police thought that there were good and bad people living there. And of course, let me, it's not, it's not, yeah, I said it before, I just, it's important. I just, you know, it's not, we're not talking about all white cops or black cops. It, it was a Likert scale. So, you know, it's a strongly disagree to strongly agree five point scale. And the, you know, but it was a statistically significant difference. Yes. And that survey, along with your book, Cop in the Hood and other writings, whatever the topic is, it all does seem to go back to the importance of, you know, what is known as community policing and basically footwork, right? Because like you said, the moment that police officers were in cars rather than on foot, they became disconnected from the community, which I imagine increases the biases that can already be baked into black and white police officers or police officers who live outside of the city versus those who live inside. It magnifies those differences, right? Because if you're, I imagine if you're walking the beat, so to speak, even if you're not from that neighborhood originally, like you did when you were a police officer, when you walk that beat, you get to know the people living in that neighborhood in ways that you can't in cars. So it all just seems to tie back to the problem of putting police officers in cars and distancing them from the actual residents of the neighborhood. There's sort of a, a double hammer effect too, because it, I don't know if it's, I think it was George Kelling who said the real way to imp improve relationships is with, with small positive interactions saying hello to someone as you're walking by them, going into stores and talking to people. Part of the problem with policing is it's a system where you're basically constantly dealing with everyone having the worst day of their life, or at least the worst day of the week. But it's people in crisis. It's victims, it's criminals, drug addiction. It's all there. If you see that for eight hours or 10 hours a day, it's very easy to forget that you are seeing a small sub-segment of any neighborhood. 
and it wears on you. But so then you start to say, well, this, if everyone I deal with is, you know, lying to me, then I think everyone's a liar. Well, yeah, people aren't inviting you to their kids' graduation parties or birthday parties. You do actually sometimes get invited to barbecues. That's always nice. But especially in, in high violence areas, people can be very supportive of police because I mean, even if they think that cops can be a problem and they've had some negative interactions, they're more afraid of the neighborhood stick up boys. So, you know, you can want more policing and better policing, but there's a tremendous amount of support for policing in high crime areas because they're high crime areas and people don't want to be victimized. But cops don't see that often. And that creates bad perception, you know, selection bias and who cops deal with. It's also, though, damaging psychologically to cops. Um, I note, you know, as I get older, and especially with cops that I worked with in Baltimore, after 20 years, they're damaged goods to some extent. I'm not saying that they're not functioning and so on and so forth, but to constantly see that and deal, you know, to see the stupidity and hate and victims day after day, it's a big ask. And, you know, that sort of psychological well-being, and I'm not a psychologist, but it doesn't get enough attention, I believe, that what does this do to the officers? I mean, last year in a more, I don't know if it's, you know, I heard from cops saying, you know, imagine just getting yelled at with vitriol for eight hours. And, you know, they weren't often not allowed to sort of respond to it. It's, It's not something that's normal for human behavior to be in that receiving position of of constant negativity. I mean, so one thing like departments learned last year with so many protests going on is to move cops in and out. So they're not constantly on the, on the front line getting yelled at. They're human beings. It's not pleasant. And you can say all oh, the, you know, oh, that's very tender of them, but no, it's, it's, it's important because again, we want to, we want these cops to be performing at, at their best. The irony last year, as I heard it mostly from older black cops, as they would shake their head and, you know, that this young white kid is yelling at them and calling her racist. And she's like, you know, you don't, you have no idea what I've been through in my life. And who are you? You know, who are you? You're t- I'm twice your age and twice as smart too, probably. Um, but, you know, but they said it was rough. It just, it, it wasn't a, a, good, a good position to be in. Yes. And to hint at our, our third area of discussion, which, which we will get to in a moment, your book, In Defense of Flogging, you make a good point. And this is something that was echoed in my discussion with Samuel Weiss, who runs the organization Rights Behind Bars. And at the end of the day, whether it's a police officer or an incarcerated person, we can't lose sight of psychology behind how people are treated and what that ultimately does to them, right? Now, there are going to be people who say, who cares if I'm screaming in a cop after someone was unjustly, you know, murdered by one of his colleagues or, or another police officer a thousand miles away, right? That's just part of the job. I'm protesting. I'm going to say whatever I want to them. I think it's important to keep in mind that whether it's a police officer or someone in prison, that the psychological ultimately, I think, most times, translates to a physical reality eventually. Whether it's something in prison where you're surrounded by criminality all the time, or you're subjected to psychological verbal abuse from the citizenry, which ultimately makes you resent them more, which makes you worse at your job. And I think it's important for society to be able to like pick these things apart, as it were, And understand that obviously we want to have better policing and we expect more from our police officers. But at the end of the day, they are just human beings and we want to incentivize them to be better police. And there are real psychological effects to being verbally abused by the citizens that you are charged to protect and serve. And I I don't want, you know, the tiniest violin playing for police officers. But I think at, at the end of the day, if what we want is less crime, we have to keep the psychological element in play. 
I mean, imagine, yeah, we don't do that. Again, policing is different and, and should be held to a higher standard. But, you know, we don't go outside hospitals and yell at doctors, even when they mess up. And they do mess up sometimes. We don't yell at teachers. Um, we try and bring out their best. You know, so it reminds me, many years ago, I was on a flight to Greece and sitting next to a, I think she was a heart surgeon. That was some new hospital in Athens. And somehow it came up that she hated operating on people from Crete. And I was like, why? And she's like, because our whole family comes and they'll threaten you if something goes wrong. You know, they'll threaten to kill you. And uh, an interesting, you know, regional variations in Greece and medical care, perhaps. But her point was like, that doesn't make me a better doctor. Why would I want to deal with that? <laughs> What's the goal? I guess it would be always exactly. what I would ask. And yeah, cops, in a way, they are paid to take it, whether they should be or not. So yeah, you, you kind of can yell at them, but <laughs> does it make you feel better? Okay. The irony, too, is I am still thinking of my, this female officer in New York who to be, it was a former student of mine, the one who was complaining about getting yelled at by white kids. She also, you know, yeah, cops, I mean, she firmly believed that George Floyd was murdered. That, you know, this is, we're talking, this is a year ago we were talking, but she's like, okay, cops killed a man in Minnesota. You know, what, what, what did I have to do with that? It wasn't even New York. That collective responsibility and accountability isn't, um, you know, the right wing does this a lot on other issues. Um, I think it's sort of a draw parallel. Yes. Undocumented immigrant murders someone. God, I'm, I'm lefty enough. I can't even think of the victim's name. But there was a specific case in San Francisco where one was killed. It's Kate Steinle. Yeah. That was such a cause celeb um, among the right wing. And people of the left don't, including myself because I forgot it, don't know her name. But this idea that, well, therefore, you know, therefore we have to change our immigration policy because look what this this one immigrant did. We don't do that, or we shouldn't do that. I mean, the right wing tries to do that. We don't, you can look at terrorism and, and Muslims, you know, okay, yeah, someone did something bad that should not reflect on the group. Of course, the difference again, as you, as you pointed out, is yeah, policing is a special category and they're paid for by the public and, and, you know, there's a lot of responsibility. So, but this idea that someone did bad somewhere, so therefore it's your fault. It, it doesn't, it, it logically doesn't follow and it's a dangerous path because it's, used and abused in other contexts as well. So I think we should always be a little um, leery and on guard to prevent the sort of group accountability when it's not actually your group that did it. Yes, absolutely. Because we talk about policing on the national level so often, I think a lot of people, even if they understand intrinsically that policing is a local issue, we talk about it as if it's federal. When it's not, how police handle a protest in Dallas versus how they handle it in New York City versus how they handle it in Los Angeles is going to be entirely different depending on what the rules, regulations, codes of conduct, et cetera, the morale, the <laughs> the culture of the police departments in those cities. I think your former student makes such a really well-stated point because I can't say it better than you did, Peter, but it's like it, whether it's skin color or immigration status or the uniform that someone is wearing, people just make that same fundamental error over and over again. Though, let me just sort of play devil's advocate against myself because there's, you know, there is a difference as police wear a uniform. Yes. No way police are asking for it because they're saying there's a, you know, there's a blue brotherhood and, you know, they go to funerals in other cities. So there is, these other groups aren't asking to be grouped together where police are to some extent. So in that sense, I'd say, well, if you're saying an attack on a cop anywhere is an attack on all of it, you know. That's true. And you're wearing a uniform and you're kind of doing a similar job. So it's not a perfect parallel, but there's nuance to this. Imagine that. <laughs> Who would have thought? I think the last question I have before we move on to the topic we've been teasing for the last 45 minutes is there's one other thing in the paper I want to touch on. You discuss three historical eras of policing. 
political reform and community slash problem solving that, to quote your paper, conceptualize major changes in white dominated police organizations in the 19th and 20th centuries, end quote. You go on to say, quote, the three eras of policing, while great for mainstream society, fail to have much relevance to the African-American policing experience. In the South, police descended not from the noble ideals of London's Robert Peel, but from horrific slave patrols. And throughout America, the political era did not benefit African-Americans who had little, if any, political power. The reform era's emphasis on law enforcement did little to help victims of legal discrimination, and the problem-solving or community era rarely solved problems working with the black community, but instead focused on the black community as the problem to be solved, end quote. So I think I have two questions here, Peter, that are related. One, have we yet entered a fourth era, in your view, in the last 12, 13 years? And two, does policing have much positive relevance in African-American communities today, or is the black community still the problem to be solved? First, let me say those, what you read there from, from my paper, that's a summary of two articles. Wilson and Kelling did the, coined the three eras of policing, and there's a response piece that goes well with it, I believe by Wilson and Murphy, or Williams and Murphy. I don't know who Williams is. Murphy was actually the New York City Police Commissioner, um, very much in the reform movement of that era. Yeah, a dominant name in policing for decades. It's their argument. Those are not my original ideas, I just want to make clear. But they're, they're good ideas. That's why I cite them uh, extensively. But to get to your question, I'm always a little afraid of over-theorizing things. Those typologies are useful because they show major shifts in policing. I don't actually think we've moved on. We're still sort of perpetually, which isn't bad, we're in a sort of a community policing model, though it's what that means is a is another question. That's a whole nother, that's a subject for another podcast is what the hell is community policing? Yes, you want to have those Peelian ideals of working with the community, but at some point, the jo- a lot of the job is telling someone to not do what they want to do or that they have to do something they don't want to do. That can never be resolved. But to over-theorize it, I think the problem is there's, there's a more fundamental truth, which is people in high crime areas disproportionately minority want more policing. And they want more policing more than white people do. Polling, it's consistent. It's not a new finding. It's always been that way. So that should be the starting point, is people have a right to public safety, uh, the expectation of public safety. This is what government, if government can't provide that, it's sort of, so maybe it's really like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but related to government, clean water, uh, public safety, not getting shot. Those are sort of, that's tops on the list. And then you can get into libraries and parks and schools, I suppose. But if you don't provide that first thing of people should not be afraid when they leave their house, that idea that, that, is, that fear is a problem. And this goes back to Jane Jacobs, by the way, this concept of, of public fear. And that became the inspiration for Wilson and Kelling's uh, Broken Windows article in The Atlantic in 1982. It's trying to answer those questions as what is, what is the role of, of police in society, but accepting that there is going to be an element of coercion, a strong element. There is going to be use of force. You know, last year during, during protests and riots, a lot of people were simply shocked at the police response. And I remember holding my head in my hands when protests and riots did start in, at the end of May 2020, because I know there's a playbook for this. <laughs> I knew what was going to happen. People were going to get hurt. And that's what happened. And a lot of people were shocked to see that side of policing. It still, unfortunately, it's, all, it's, it's, it's not a science. There's some parts to it. There's a lot of art to it and a lot of, you know, 
individual people, cops did bad things and some departments did bad things. Yeah, there, there's a playbook for what police did. They weren't completely winging it, though, at times they were. I, I don't know where that leaves us. Some of it is don't just listen to the loudest voice in the room. But it's hard to define, you know, what I don't actually like using the word community because it tends to imply that there is a single community. And there never is. You know, you can say oh, community policing is good. It's, you know, part of the weird thing about the term is impossible to be against, which makes me suspicious of it. But yeah, who's the community? Is it the, pe- is it the old people that come to the police public meetings? Say those rowdy kids are on my lawn. Or is it those rowdy kids? I mean, they're, you know, they're both part of the community. There are many different communities in any given area. So we don't have to resolve or answer all of these. We just have to be aware that they're always going to be, there's always going to be, it's complicated. It's real life. It's the real world. So you want people who believe that cops will treat them with respect and professionalism. And, you know, even if they're getting arrested or if they call cops because of some problem they're having, ultimately that's the best we can do and figure out how to achieve that. You know, money is not the answer, but it's part of the solution. Um, it's, you know, throwing money at the problem isn't guaranteed to make it better, but taking money away is going to make it worse almost inevitably. Quite frankly, I don't think, of course, yeah, I don't think things are this won't surprise people read what I write, you know, I don't think things are quite as bad in policing as a lot of people are saying, but there certainly is room for improvement. Yes. I think one of the problems is circling back to the point you made about the the murder in San Francisco by the undocumented immigrant is that social media and before that, the 24 hour news cycle and before that sensational journalism, but I think social media has really magnified it is that whatever the issue is, right? Whether it's the right wing social media sphere and and news sphere showing every single case of someone undocumented committing a crime or showing video of people, quote unquote, flooding through the border or whatever, et cetera. Or on the left, showing every single act of malfeasance, bad actions by police. And then those actions, even when they should be condemned specifically and the police should be punished, if they're shown on every person's smartphone, no matter where they live in the U.S., That act took place once locally in a specific city, and yet everyone on their phone, no matter where they live, in or outside of the U.S., can see it, and they can watch it thousands of times. And so it creates this effect where it feels very local because you're watching it wherever you are, and it feels ever-present because it's playing everywhere all the time, even though it was one action. And so it seems like a problem that is occurring on the right and the left around different topics, but it's exacerbating things and making things appear worse than they are even when, as you said, they need to be improved. And there is something about, you know, people should sometimes have their conscience shocked by horrible behavior, but it also is a big country. And this is not interesting. Cops see this bad behavior just in general so much more. So often they can, you know, you develop thick skin to human suffering, quite frankly. So the idea that, I mean, I think maybe a lot of people, do they really think cops weren't shooting people sometimes mistakenly before 2014? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe because now they see it. It could just be that, yeah, that everyone's got a camera and there is social media. Um, I actually did pull up the numbers because I was curious. In New York City, cops shot 314 people in 1971. That is a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Killed 93 people that year. 810 firearm discharge. So they missed a lot too. But to go from 93 people killed in a year by cops. And the population of New York City was much smaller in 1971. So these numbers plummeted from 300 people shot 
dropped to under 100 in ni- by 1983. The last year I have numbers is 2019. It was it was 24 people shot, and that was a very high year. Too. That was a but to to have these reductions and then to say that this is now for, for people to say this is a a bigger problem than ever and a growing problem. It's frustrating as a researcher and someone who's been in this field now for two decades. Things really were getting better. We we were working on this, you know, maybe not with enough focus, maybe not with enough urgency. And, you know, one good thing that's come out of the past few years, though we haven't fixed it. People would ask me, reporters would say, well, you know, how many people do cops kill a year? And the answer was, we don't know. I mean, what? That's crazy that we don't know. Now we have a very good idea, but, you know, largely because a couple newspapers started keeping track and there's a good website called Fatal Encounters that provides this data. But we still don't have a national clearinghouse for this stuff. But things, yeah, we're getting better. And then suddenly, you know, people got really concerned when we've when we've never, you know, we've never been better at this than we are now. And suddenly that became the big the, the big problem. It's the way the world is now. So we don't and shouldn't go back to something where people we can't go back. You know, this will always now be seen. But I guess for a lot of people it's the first time they saw it. Oh, absolutely. I, I have relatives who kind of experienced a change of view around policing for the first time because of the social media they started watching. And thankfully, it changed their minds in ways that anecdote or quote unquote hearsay could not. Visually seeing it on their phones play out, I think had a real impact on a lot of Americans who, well, let's just say it, were often white and were not in close contact with a lot of the brutality that we're now seeing on our phones and in video. But I do want to use this as a way to transition (laughs) to your book in defense of flogging, because you say in the book at at one point that part of the reason that it's so hard to reform our prison system and our criminal justice system in general is that we don't really see what goes on after people enter prison. And so it's kind of a black box, which I think was kind of a similar problem that was happening with policing for so long until fairly recently with social media, is that if you were not coming face to face with oftentimes brutal police tactics or lack of care, you weren't aware that it was happening. So I want to quote a piece from the beginning of your book to kind of kick this off and let the reader or let the listener in (laughs) if they haven't read the book on the premise of the book. So you write, quote, I won't dispute that flogging is a severe and even brutal form of punishment. Under the lash, skin is literally ripped from the body. But very little could be worse than years in prison, removed from society and all that you love. Going to prison means losing a part of your life and everything you care for. Compared to this, flogging is just a few very painful strokes on the behind. And it's over in a few minutes. If you had the chance, if you were given the option of staying out of jail, wouldn't you choose to be flogged and released? Think about it. Five years hard time or 10 lashes on the behind you'd probably choose flogging, wouldn't we all? End quote. And I did a poll that took this question and I put it on Twitter and like 95% of people chose the lash. So, And the other 5% are lying. And the other, the other 5% that's very, that is probably quite true. In our previous conversation, we discussed why you decided to become a Baltimore police officer and ultimately write your first book, Cop in the Hood. So I, my first question to you, Peter, is, what drove you to write in defense of flogging and why use corporal punishment, even in a hypothetical, as the framing device to discuss America's modern system of incarceration? I wrote it because of mass incarceration. You know, the fact that America in the 70s and 80s and 90s achieved 
a record of locking up its own people. You know, America didn't even used to be this way. That's important. It's not just that we're different from other countries. We didn't used to be this way. I think there's at some level something immoral about having 2 million people behind bars. And now it's, I think it's a bit under that. But, you know, we'd more prisoners than any other country in the world ever had. Some of it is I enjoyed the um, historical, partly, you know, after spending years of my life on Cop in the Hood and becoming a cop to do it, I said, I want to write a book where I don't ever have to leave my office. So it was a thought experiment. And I should say, the, so the point of that basic gambit that I present in the book is to say, yeah, we don't flog, and for good reason, but instead we do something worse. Like, I want people to understand how bad incarceration is. Um, sometimes I wonder if I'm a frustrated historian, because the, the history of incarceration in prisons is fascinating, just as the history of police is. But I, I don't think a lot of people know that prisons were invented. It was not an evolution from jails. We had jails, but they were really were just used primarily to keep people until they could be tried and flogged or executed in the old days, probably. It was a progressive concept that started in Philadelphia when the Walnut Street Jail became the Walnut Street Penitentiary. It's strangely rooted in Quaker um, background and ideology. Quaker, yeah, I think I place some blame, blame the Quakers for prisons. But the idea was that we will cure the criminal just like we can cure, you know, medical advances were being made. It was a science and it never worked. There was actually, but so, you know, to give you an idea of the jail in the old day, the warden of the jail ran a bar in the jail and people could come and visit and buy drinks. You know, I'm sure he was making a hefty profit off that, but that was a point. Oh, we can't have that. I don't know. Why not? This idea of solitary confinement, you know, silence, that was, that's part of the link to Quakerism. Of course, prisons are incredibly loud places, ironically, but that the, the, it was an idea. And, you know, I think with decent intentions, maybe we're not going to beat prisoners anymore. Instead, we're going to starve them. Is that, that's an improvement? People thought it was. It was a big shift away from, from corporal punishment in America. The problem is, yeah, we took a bad system and I think we replaced it with something even worse. So we do need to rethink prisons and incarceration. But the other part sort of behind that, I wanted the book to appeal to the right wing, to people who were pro-prison, quite frankly. You know, I, I don't like preaching to the choir. Probably would have sold better if I had done that. But I was like, I don't, you know, have to convince my academic colleagues that prison is not a great thing. I wanted to cross over into the Fox News viewership. At that sense, the book failed. I was also, you know, I was worried because of the title uh, that it would be misinterpreted. It wasn't. You know, Mother Jones loved it. The left that actually read the book, I mean, it was because of the title, I think. It was very well and frequently reviewed from The Atlantic and Mother Jones and The Economist. It was kind of everywhere for a little while. Didn't sell any copies, by the way. But at least the left understood it, but it didn't actually achieve its crossover effect that I was that, that I was hoping. Because I wanted, you know, I thought, well, I'm a writer. I don't. Ideally, I'd like to change the world for the better. And how do I do that? Well, through through writing. That was the attempt. It's a short book. It did or didn't do what it you know happened. But the idea, I do emphasize in the book that the concept of punishment is important. The left, ideological left, doesn't like the idea of punishment. America is, for better or for worse, I think worse, but you know, we're a pretty putative, vengeance-filled nation, I think, at least by modern Western standards or modern Eastern standards. But the idea that, so, you know, if, well, if someone does something really bad, we just, you know, add on years. These are real years. Canada has prison sentences that are half the length of American sentences. 
That's a good place to start, by the way. If you want to reduce incarceration, just sentence people to shorter times. It's so arbitrary often how many years somebody gets. But instead, we're sort of, my fear is that sentences will get longer and less consistent. I would pose a few questions to you. You know, we can sort of discuss some of the themes of the book right now. I think someone hearing this discussion may ask, why would physical punishment be better, so to speak, than sentencing someone to prison? And two, this is my sort of my question to you, Peter, would be, do you think that we are okay, quote unquote, and I'm using that term loosely, as a nation, sentencing someone to oftentimes decades in prison and then just adding, just to, to go back to what you just said, adding years on kind of willy-nilly because we don't really appreciate one, how oftentimes brutal and grueling prison is, and two, the idea of taking years from someone's life is so abstract, I feel like we might prefer the abstraction. We don't have to look at it. You know, in the same way that Americans today don't know what it's like to kill the food they're eating, myself included, right? Like I go to a Vons, I go to a grocery store, and the, the steak is prepackaged for me, right? But the idea of watching a video of a cow being killed disturbs me. I would never do it. And so I, I wonder in the same thing here, the idea of someone getting five lashes, right? As brutal as I'm sure that would be in the moment, feels more icky, feels more brutal than putting someone away for five years and never thinking about them again, even though that is five years of their life, as you note in the book, that they'll never get back. That's them not watching their daughter grow up or son grow up. I think that's exactly it. That's why I want people to go, yeah, you, you might, and you should be icked out by the idea of someone getting whipped. So apply that to prison because it's worse. And you think, anyway, you think people don't get beat up in prison? I mean, if you think cops are a problem, wait till you see correctional officers and what goes on in those closed institutions. But part of the reason I think prison spread in the early days, and we're talking, you know, early 1800s here, it wasn't, you know, this American idea was moving away from a British, you know, it was anti-British to some extent, is when you have exp experts who say, leave this to us, especially when we're dealing with people who have done some very bad things, the public is sort of happy to say, sure, take it off our hands. You just want some money to set up this new system and you're the experts. Okay. Out of sight, out of mind to some extent, but that's the dangerous part is that out of sight, out of mind. It should be on our mind. I wish we at least accept what we have prisons for. Some people are dangerous and we're afraid of them. And so we keep them away from us. That's a job prisons serve pretty well, but those people are, there are not that many of those people. In the book, I talk about the Hannibal Lecters, um, but you know, he's a fictional character. Still, there are some people that we're just going, no, we, we, we don't trust you in society. Okay, that's fine. There's also the issue that men in particular age out of violence. So once you hit 35 or so, you know, the odds of, of violent recidivism drops tremendously. So that is also sort of an incapacitation potential benefit. Okay. But beyond that, let's not pretend you're going to get better in prison. I mean, there, and there are some exceptions, by the way. I mean, it's not, they're making broad statements here. And of course, there's some exceptions, but very few people leave prison better than they went in. Let's give up that nonsense that there are all these programs that benefit people and it's, it's this summer camp environment. No, it's a, it's a horrible, brutal place. And some are better than others. Again, I would also say, given the system we have, let's try to make it better and make it more humane. Let's be honest of what the role the prison's serve and why they have it. And if the role is simply to punish someone, which it basically is now, and that was not, again, the purpose of prisons, the invention was not to punish people, but to 
as I said, but, but to cure them. I mean, we'd have a very different world if prisons hadn't been invented. And I think a better world. We'd have different ways of punishing. I don't know what those would be. Some of it, you know, if people have money, though a lot of criminals don't, we could find them. And we could actually have real home detention, you know, enforced. There are ways to punish people that aren't so horribly destructive by and large. That's, I think, what our, you know, that that's what we have to say is we, we you know, let's put on our thinking caps and figure out a better way to do this. I should add, though, there's some people think that our prisons are filled with nonviolent drug offenders, not, you know, isn't true. You do often have to do something pretty bad and hurt somebody to end up behind bars for years, you know, so that at least has to be addressed. Everyone in prison is not an, a misunderstood angel. So to kind of loop back to your premise of the book, in offering corporal punishment, lashing, beating, in place of jail time, so to speak, for nonviolent offenses. I kind of want to tease that out with you a little bit because I'm I, I pulled up some data, and I know you're familiar with this from the Prison Policy Initiative that kind of breaks down who's in prison in 2020 and why. It's one of the best graphic uh, visualizations I've ever seen. Their annual pie chart of with the population. It's um yeah, people should yeah. Google that, <laughs> and I'll make sure to put it in the the show notes so, so people can reference it as we discuss it. In 2020, it shows that between state and federal prisons and local jails, there's about 2.3 million people confined total nationwide. And then out of that, if we just look at state, federal, and local, there's about 900,000 of them, give or take, maybe 885,000 to 900,000 people are in jail for violent offenses, right? So that means that, quick back of the napkin math here, 1.4 million people are for nonviolent offenses. Is the premise then basically that those 1.4 million should have been or should be offered the option of corporal punishment in place of jail time? And then for the violent offenders, we separate them from society for a set amount of time and then release them? That line between violent and nonviolent offenders is far more non delineated than one might think. It's not a strict line. I generally would apply this concept of violent offenders as well, by the way. They did something bad. They deserve to be punished. Okay. But it doesn't, not in any of our interest to destroy their lives. Nonviolent offenders, you really have to look at a case-by-case basis because a lot of those nonviolent offenders did something very much that was violent. In that incident that ended, that got them ended up in prison, it's often a result of plea bargaining where you might get convicted of a sentence that doesn't quite reflect the crime you committed, but that's the deal. We'll make it, we'll give you a different charge basically, or a lesser charge, and then you plead guilty. But the actual crime can be different. For instance, our prisons are yeah, not, certainly not filled with nonviolent drug offenders, um, but there's some in there in that chart. A lot of that, and I saw this from, from a cop perspective, you know, these were violent um, public drug dealers. But you arrest them for it's hard to it's hard to prove intent to sell even when it's pretty obvious because you're watching them sell. It's a much harder case to prove. But you can get them on possession because that's that's not you know not subjective. <laughs> you had heroin on you in a somewhat large amount. Okay, but so, so you might actually go to prison for possession of crack cocaine or heroin, but it doesn't reflect the crime you did, which is different and worse and often involves violence. I just think the question is even for someone who commits a violent crime, are we afraid of you? Are you going to do it again? You know, is this a mental problem? Certain crimes have a lot of recidivism, domestic violence, sex crimes. Those are people that we may go, I'm sorry, but yeah, we're, we're, we're afraid of you. We don't trust you in public. That, I think, should be the framework, not so much the, not so much what crime happened. Deal with the punishment, but that chart, who, who does it again? It's PPI, right? Prison Policy Initiative. 
initiative. There are a couple interesting, and I haven't looked at it in a while, um, but I can I can picture it in my head. Yeah, the nonviolent drug offenders are not a huge chunk, and as I just said, a lot of them actually are violent drug offenders. Another part is people talk about private prisons, which is a small fraction of incarceration. I think it's a particularly immoral fraction. I'm against them for a lot of reasons, everything from how they operate to financial incentive. I think there's something wrong about financial incentives. I don't want prisons lobbying for more incarceration, which they do, and changing immigration policy, for instance. So I think they're a particularly nefarious concept, private prisons, but it's, I forget, it's like, you know, it's like 5%, I think, of prisoners are kept in a private prison. Um, so that's not the big problem either, is what I'm saying. The issue is, is yeah, it's state prisons. That's where the bulk of it is. There is one strange benefit to private prisons is they're a lot easier to close. You don't have to deal with union issues and political, you know, public prisons have political influence as well, but those are often centered more on, on working conditions and so on. I disparage correctional officers because I, I think there is a lot more brutality in prison. I also want to add, it's a really horrible job and my, you know, someone's got to do it. It's hard work and, you know, most of them manage, I suppose, to do it just fine. But boy, you know, it's a phrase that a life sentence eight hours at a time. I don't think anyone really grows up dreaming of being, being a correctional officer. But that's also part of the evils of prison is the damage it can do to the workers there as well. Oh, yes. An uncle of mine was a correctional officer at a women's prison for, I think, 25 years. And some of the stories that he <laughs> he has shared are pretty brutal in terms of what he saw and depraved. So, I, I can't bicker with you there. But you mentioned recidivism, and it brings me to another passage in your book that I think is, is relevant. It's a bit lengthy, so I'm going to read it for the listener, as I'm sure you're already familiar with it, having written it. I'm just going to say it here. Quote, Almost as horrifying as what goes on in modern jails and how so many people wind up there is what happens after they're released. Whereas the process that sends so many Americans to prison is fundamentally defective, getting out of prison is equally problematic, albeit in different ways. Coming home after prison is called reentry. And like every other stage of the criminal justice system, it fails. Just take the simple standard of making people not commit crime. Of the more than 700,000 prisoners released each year, two-thirds are rearrested within three years, and half of those end up back in prison. Why? Maybe they're bad eggs. But even good eggs can do stupid things when they're without money, a stable home, antipsychotic medication, common sense, or the ability to find a job. Whatever circumstances led somebody to commit a crime probably haven't changed by the time they're freed. A released prisoner hangs out with the same friends in the same neighborhood and without the same job he never had. Or maybe a prisoner is a badass who enjoys adrenaline and the thrill of the crime. Part of the problem is that not only do prisons not cure crime, they're truly criminogenic. Prisons cause crime. When released, people who go to prison are more likely to commit a crime than similar criminals who don't go to prison, end quote. I found that passage so revelatory. Because as you've mentioned in this conversation, prisons are ineffective at preventing recidivism. And more than that, they make the imprisoned more likely to reoffend. So my question to you, Peter, is what are some ways our criminal justice system before, during, and after a person is incarcerated can improve so that we may decrease recidivism, reduce crime, and I think importantly, and this is lost a lot of times, provide our fellow citizens with better lives once they've paid their debt to society? I would say the first thing is the skills you need to survive in prison, the social skills and attitude are really not uh, productive to 
getting a job and holding a job. So you have this environment where we, it's a school for crime. People leave prison changed and not for the better. So if we can, it's best to not have people go into that system at all. At some point, I, you know, I don't know, maybe it's after that, it's, it's too late. I don't know. Uh, but we can work hard to avoid that. Now, to do that, the problem is you have prison abolitionists. And this book, to some extent, is like an old-fashioned 1970 prison abolition book. The problem, I think, is that abolitionists don't believe in punishment either. And that, I don't think, is morally correct. And it's certainly politically not going to happen. So we do need to be creative in how we deal with crimes before they happen. You know, ending the drug war, even though most prisoners aren't drug prisoners, there's almost always a drug connection that correlates very well with the rise of imprisonment in America is is our war on drugs. So a lot of the shootings, you know, it's just, it's not related in certain cities related to drug dealers fighting. And it's often that they're over sort of beefs that aren't related to drugs even. But so, yeah, the war on drugs was a really bad move and ineffective. You know, beyond that, we just, I I think we got to make it, the punishment is going to prison. It's not that the conditions are supposed to be cruel and inhumane. If you're a prisoner, even in a nice hotel with room service, certainly we'd be better than being in a prison. But, you know, it's still, if you can't can't leave, that's that's the punishment. That's a big deal. (laughs) I think we owe it to ourselves as as decent human beings to to just simply make the conditions better. And yeah, that would cost money. It'd be easier if we had fewer prisoners and we could do that. But this idea of prison by and large is a communal living situation, certain jails in particular. You know, you can be the if you're the victim of a crime in prison and there's crime happens in prison, you have to live with your offender. They're very, you know, that can get as bad as you want to think, though again, most places manage to maintain some level of safety. But it's it's a irredeemably broken concept. So I don't know, quite frankly, but I wanted this, I wanted in defense of flogging to start the discussion of it. Let's figure out what we can do better. How did we do it before? Well, we did it before with corporal punishment. Despite the gamut of the book, I would not want to go back to that, but we do have to, but, but why prisons? You know, and just we're stuck with them now. We've lost our ability to, the same creative streak that led to the invention of prisons, I would like to apply that same creative energy to to their abolition. I don't have the answers to these things. Partly, you know, it isn't my professional field. Other people can work on that, but we have to, it's, prisoners almost all get out. That's, that's important to remember too. So yes, what then? So yeah, I mean, at some point I would just argue for some type of social safety net and, you know, it's interesting, you know, education is good and prison, you do have some time on your hands. It's interesting though, because I teach at a public university. Boy, you know who doesn't want prisoners to get free education? My students. Because they got to pay for it. And I can't blame them to some extent. They're like, I'm working two jobs and, and going to school to, to pay this. And it's, you know, it's to pay the tuition at a, at a public university. Um, why, why should they get it for free? And I don't have an answer at one level, only because in the long run, it's better for all of us. But it's hard to win votes by saying, I want to make uh, prisoners' lives more comfortable. But I think we owe it not just to prisoners, but we owe it to ourselves. Um, and figure out what's going to happen when they get out. You know, some companies are better at hiring people out. Like I think McDonald's actually is is pretty good on that, not being willing to hire people who are who who have been incarcerated. Jobs would help. A lot of it too is mental health care, though. That's the other sort of elephant in the room. People have mental issues, and we're not dealing with it. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And to loop back to something you said about your students not wanting to provide a free college to people who have been in prison, I think 
at least on Twitter anyway, I have been accused of both sidesing things as if the left and right are equal in some way. And of course, I don't think they are issue to issue. But I think when it comes to prisoners and the incarcerated and criminals present or ex-convicts on the right, or as demonstrated in 2020, police, police officers, police departments on the left, I think there is a binding psychological commonality there, which is we can't seem or the sides can't seem to see that the best outcome long-term is not to defund police or scream at them that they're racist and scream curse words at them every single day. It's usually to provide more funding, better training, a whole host of things that will make them better in the same way that although it might feel good to be quote unquote tough on crime, the actual thing to do, as you've said in your writing, Peter, is to give ex-prisoners better education, better access to jobs, pay them, you know, like we would have to spend more money and we would have to be kinder, but it would ultimately lead to a decrease in crime, which I would think ultimately we all want. But it seems like we get stuck in these sort of sloganeering of defund the police or be tough on crime. And, and it's really not helping anybody. No, we also, you know, we don't address family structure. I always say the problem, I'm not saying everyone needs a two-parent household. We're way past that debate. I'm talking about people need a one-parent household. You know, it's people who grow up without a loving parent in their life. That's part of the issue we need to address. There are cultural issues. It's not just about having, you know, a job and some sort of bourgeois middle-class life. There are big differences in culture. Maybe at some point, we need to pass some judgment and say, yeah, I don't like this one that glorifies shooting. There's some fundamental issues, I think. We're not really having an honest discussion on a lot of this stuff. Um, that, that's part of the problem. I don't know what the solutions are. Yeah, it'd be great if everyone had a loving parent in their life, but some people don't. So what are, what are we going to do? I don't know. I don't know. But that's, I don't know if a jobs program necessarily is going to fix that, though can't hurt. It might help. I think having make work programs, WPA style almost, the idea that if you want to work, we can, there's a job for you. It's not going to be well-paying. But at least then there is something about just showing up every day at 9 a.m. that I think can set some lives straighter. And at least then we can say, look, there, here is, there is work. You know, if, if you choose not to, that's a different issue. But at least then we can address that honestly. There are some people that make some bad choices. <laughs> that's important to mention. It's not always their fault, but still bad choices. That's why my students are interesting because they – by and large, grew up in the same neighborhood. So they're like, I made the right choices in life. I, you know, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for me, they say, and it wasn't. And these are, you know, immigrants and kids of immigrants um, in New York City. There was a fork in the road and, and I went one way and this person I knew went the other. And so in a way, they deserve to be rewarded for that. My dream of dreams, yeah, I'd, I'd move towards sort of a European social welfare state a little bit more. At least then we can say, if you still make bad choices, then then, then it's then it's on you. So to take away some of, some of the excuses that might be offered, none of this is an easy lift. You know, the thing is you say about accused of both side-ism, both sides aren't equal, as you said. And yes, often one side is more right than the other. But it's important to have a little both sides-ism because the alternative is, is to have some ideological purity of your beliefs that I think is dangerous. If you really have all the answers already and you don't think the other side has any valid points, that's... It's, it's probably wrong, first of all, but I don't think that's healthy for society. I'm a little biased, but I completely agree with that answer. And it's a part of why I wanted to have this podcast and a part of the reason I wanted to talk to folks like you, because I think, as you said earlier, 
we're not having these discussions enough with enough nuance, but they're so important, right? Like even just to touch on something you just said about how, you know, your students often come from uh, working class or poor backgrounds, they're immigrants or the children of immigrants. And I think understandably, they rightly say like, look, I did the right things. I got out. I made all the right choices, right? And that, I understand that can drive, not saying any individual student, but it can, I understand how it could potentially drive a kind of resentment toward giving someone who didn't make those choices opportunities that they earned, right? And I get that. But there has to be a balance to strike between obviously rewarding and recognizing effort and, and discipline where people have achieved it. But also that doesn't mean we have to be unnecessarily punitive and hostile and brutal to people who have to go back to another podcast episode with Aaron Rabinowitz, who just weren't as lucky, right? Whether because of a state of mind or the household they grew up in, or just any one of many rolls of cosmic dice that put them in the position they're in, obviously not taking away their agency, but the decisions we make are interconnected with the environment in which we are raised. And I think understanding that can lead us to a kinder, dare I say, gentler criminal justice system, which I think we really need. You know, if I could talk, because we expound on that a bit, this idea of personal agency, there's yeah, even an ideological divide on that. It's important not to ignore agency, because people do have agency. That said, it's important to recognize these greater structural forces that matter. The example I like to give in class, especially if it's a room of cops that believes everything is pure free will and agency, and to some extent, they're right. You know, that gun didn't shoot itself. You pulled the trigger. That was a choice you made, and it was a bad choice. It was a wrong choice. I want to cast moral blame on that. But I say, how many of you in this room, myself included, would like to lose some weight, 10, 20 pounds, whatever it is? Every single bit of fat on your body is from food you put in your mouth and ate. So why don't you just lose weight? Oh, it's not that easy, right? Yeah, these are choices you make. But, you know, sometimes you don't have uh, complete free will. Weight is a good example of that with people who want to lose weight and don't. Oh, they want to, but it's not that easy. Yes, that is absolutely true. I just want to comment on an experience that I had before I pose the final question to you, which I have asked you before in, in your previous appearance, but... Oh, you have, and I don't know my answer. <laughs> well, you can think about it over the next 30 seconds. Well, I comment on an experience that my mother had with an organization known as the Delancey Street Foundation. It's based in San Francisco, but they also have a location here in Los Angeles. For anyone unfamiliar, it's a nonprofit that operates residential rehabilitation services and basically works with substance abusers, ex-convicts, and other people who have, to use their words, hit rock bottom and uses that rehabilitation to provide them with opportunities and work often. And one of those opportunities here in Los Angeles, it's basically a, a moving company. When I was moving apartments about a decade ago, I was still going to school. My mom had, had stopped by that weekend to kind of help me move and I had to go to a class. And so I had heard good things about the Delancey Street moving company. And um, my mom was a little trepidatious because I told her kind of the background. She was like, oh, I don't know about that. And I'm like, mom, you know, they're all vetted, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd never worked with them either. And my mom finally said, okay, we can, we can try them. They, they had like five-star ratings on Yelp and like 2,000 reviews. So she felt assured enough, right? So I come back from class. And over the course of the four hours that I was on campus, the gentleman from this organization had come. They'd helped move the furniture and carry all these heavy boxes and done some grueling labor, right? And she said that it was the best service and some of the kindest and most respectful treatment 
that she had ever received from any man in any profession ever, right? And these were all, by their own admission, ex-convicts, right? They wouldn't accept a tip. It was part of, I guess, the, the culture of the organization, no matter how much my mom wanted to tip them for their excellent service. And she was just glowing. I wanted to say that because why I enjoy talking about this stuff with you, Peter, and why I've talked about this on the show a few times, is this, I fundamentally believe in the ability for 99.9% of human beings to reform themselves and to change. And that memory of my mom's face when I came back from class, compared to how trepidatious she was before we called them, stuck with me because she was blown away. And those were changed men. There's no more point to the story than that, but I just, I wanted to share it because it matters. Well, you know, I was talking to my mom recently and forgot that she went to community college in Long Island in like 19, I don't know, in the 1950s. And she mentioned a specific teacher she had, an English teacher, which was learning English. My mom's always been very good about writing letters of thanks to for customer service kind of thing. And I think this ties in well to a lot of what we said. I didn't realize that she got that habit from a specific teacher that she, she could identify. And she, you know, the idea that people are very quick to write nasty letters and complain, and we don't acknowledge enough just, you know, when people do basic acts of kindness, you know, whether it's in a business sense or a personal sense, to accentuate the positive. Um, there's, a, there's a real value in that. And it's great to hear that, you know, your mom sort of saw that, saw that, but also that she understood you got to see the joy in her face and she also got to like, feel good in a way for her change that happened. So that's about as positive as I can get in closing. Yes. I hope for a future, and I know you do as well, and that's why you write what you do, in which we do not need to rely on simply private nonprofit organizations to do this work. I think what an organization like the Lancy Street Foundation points to is that if we give people the opportunity to change and we provide them with a stable setting and money and a good job, and we get them away from the environments that turn them into the person that got them into jail in the first place, that people can and do change. And so that's why I appreciate your writing, Peter. And, and that's why I thank you for, for joining us today. But hopefully you've had some time to think because I'm about to pose the question to oh, you. No. Can I give the same answer as last time? It still applies. You're, you are welcome to, but this is uh, episode 41 now, and uh, I've never missed asking this question, so I shan't start now. So as individuals, we're limited in our time, our energy, and often our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person all the time, every group of people. It's just impossible, right? There's too many things going on. So is there someone, Peter, or a group of people in your life or in the world at large that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to. I'm going to give the same answer as last time because I still believe it. And that is are basically international refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants seeking a better life. In the same way that prisons were invented, let's not forget the nation state was invented and kind of recently. The idea of separating people by arbitrary borders. People are in unfortunate situations, not because of choices they made, but simply because, you know, a war started in their <laughs> village because they're, you know, had to leave because they're afraid of getting killed or just starving. So I think we need a lot more empathy for um, people trying to cross borders for a better life. Well said, Peter. I agree. And with that, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast a second time. Hopefully, if I have my way, I'd love to have you again a third time in 2022. So thank you for your writing, your work. Everyone, I highly recommend you go to copinthehood.com. 
listen to the Quality Policing Podcast, and just get familiar with the folks that Peter knows uh, and talks with and the writing and work that he does. So Peter, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for your time. Uh, my pleasure. It's a fabulous discussion to, to have with you always. <laughs>